going, everybody? Welcome back to Bounty Boards, your favorite video game podcast. If not, it should be. Um, episode 148. We're still doing it. Uh, today, I have a very special guest with me. Uh, I am, of course, uh, your always host, Caleb Sawyer. Uh, but today, I have the creator of Citizen Sleeper, Gareth Damian Martin. And they are established, uh, I will say. Uh, Gareth has been published all over the place from Eurogamer to Rock Paper Shotgun, um, Kill Screen, Edge Magazine, Freeze Magazine. They are also the editor and creator of Heterotopias, a uh, independent zine about games and architecture. They've had their photography of video games shown at London's Photographer's Gallery, Gallery, sorry, the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Lisbon Architecture Triennale as well as published in the British Journal of Photography. And Gareth is also a PhD recipient from Royal Holloway University in London. Hello, Gareth. Hi there. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm, yeah, <laughs> a, very, uh, a very loud train just passed by my window. So I, I was uh, 50% listening to the train and 50% listening to the introduction. Well, I didn't hear the train at all, so that's fine. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so how are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm very I'm feeling relaxed. I'm I've, you know, I've released a video game and two episodes for that video game this year. So my general feeling right now is that I'm I'm good for this year. If I don't sure. don't do anything now, I'm I'm good. So I'm going to I'm going to stick sure. to to that. So yeah, the, the I'm feeling feeling relaxed or at least trying to. Good. That's good. So yeah, Flux came out in When did Flux come out? October. July, no, July. So flux July, in July, July. and refuge yeah, and in refuge October. Is October. Yeah, which so last just, last week. I just played through refuge. All I finished playing through refuge last night. I wanted to make sure I got through that. Um, what was uh, why did uh, why did you decide to add more to it after it came out? Was it something that like you had planned while you were making it, or was it like you'd finished largely, and then realized, oh, I have, I have another story I want to tell. Well, so Citizen Sleeper was kind of intended to be a lightweight version of something that I could make in two years and that would kind of test the idea because it was kind of an experiment to see if this dice, if I could pull these dice systems into games and they would work to build a narrative and if the setting was interesting. But all the time I was working on it, I was thinking to myself, okay, this is something that I would like to be bigger. I would like to make sure, that I would like to work on something that has a, a, a more than one game outlook. But I thought sure. I'll start with the kind of minimum version in a way and then just see if people like it and uh, see if people tick it up, see if, uh, if people kind of want to see more. And just immediately the, the response on launch was that people definitely want more. Um, yeah. So I just immediately started with that. Uh, I did have the, some of the ideas a little bit. I, I knew it was going to be the refugee flotilla coming because that was an idea that I'd had a long time ago. Um, right at the beginning of Citizen Sleeper, I'd kind of that that was something I was playing about with. So I was like, okay, I'll definitely have the refugee flotilla arrive, and then I just kind of worked it out as I as I went um, a little bit to try and figure out how those stories would expand. But I have tons of bits and pieces written down for kind of the wider system of sure. the the Hellion system, which it takes place in, and the wider universe and all of that. So there's like loads of things to to pick and choose from. In, in my mind and, and introduce the player to. Sure, sure. So I guess probably the most appropriate way to go about this is to talk about how, I guess, you got to Citizen Sleeper. Where did, uh, 
where did you start making games? Why was that a thing that you were interested in? I read that your uh, your doctorate was in um, like experimental experimental literature. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, kind of. So, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, just like prose, prose yeah. poetry, basically. Um, sure. So how uh, how does that? I mean, how does younger how does younger Gareth in in learning what you were learning in school, uh, and I assume also playing games, uh, become the mindset of I'm going to make these and I'm going to try and and play with the different ways that narrative can be delivered, can be experienced, can be can be altered. Yeah, I think for me it's a really long and wandering journey that I took because I I um, didn't get to games straight away as a creative. I mean, I played games a lot as a, a kid and a teenager. I was really into games, but I really wanted to uh, be an artist, really. I think that was my first desire. I, I wanted to paint and draw, and I tried to do that at university. I ended up going to university to do puppetry in the end because I didn't get into the, the art uh, degrees that I wanted to do. So I went to a theater school and I studied puppetry, mostly because I thought it was an incredibly weird and interesting thing to study. Um, sure. <laughs> I was like, okay, let, that sounds cool. I didn't get into the art schools I wanted to get into. So let's just do something. Let's just go for something interesting that seems exciting. So I studied that and I worked in theater after my degree. Um, I also worked, you know, very relevant to Citizen Sleeper. I spent a lot of time working for employment agencies, doing random gig work, doing random jobs, working in bars, things like this. Um, but I also got did work in theater um, and I ended up doing work in theater design and exhibition design. I also spent a while working as a games critic for a TV channel, a video games TV channel. That was a pretty weird project. And I ended up being the manager of that channel. So I was working kind of with games and games criticism and, and video and TV. Um, but yeah, and then I, I, I kind of did my PhD in literature quite late. Um, so I started doing that. I finished that when I, when I was 30. So I started doing that in my late 20s. And um, that was kind of about me trying to... I'd kind of wandered around a lot and I was trying to kind sure. of consolidate my life into something. And I sure. got, I, I managed to get funding to do a PhD. So I was like, okay, I can, this is a chance to experiment and to play about and to do some things. And I did that PhD in, in literature, um, mostly focused on how narrative uh, occurs in procedurally generated literature, which was like a very particular thing, but very particularly looking at the idea of, of things being considered narrative and non-narrative and kind of um, rejecting the idea that anything is non-narrative. So a lot of my work was looking at text and kind of saying like narrative is not necessarily something that's happening in the text. It's something, it's a way of understanding text that we have. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's about patterns that we identify in texts. So this was kind of my PhD. And, and when I got to the end of the PhD, I realized that I was just going to have to go back to freelance design work. And I didn't really want to do that anymore. So I tried to kickstart a video game, um, mostly because I think I understood that as somebody who liked narrative, as somebody who knew how to write, as somebody who knew things about video games from being a games critic, and as somebody who was a graphic designer, I felt like I had a set of skills that 
could only really be combined in video games. Um, sure, sure. It's like one of the only places where you could be a writer, designer, and kind of like, yeah, a game designer, I guess, all those three things combined. So um, that was the story behind kind of In Other Waters, uh, my mm-hmm. first video game, which I managed to kickstart and then fellow traveler, my publisher, contacted me and wanted to sign the game and they funded the development of the game. Um, and In Other Waters, despite being a game about a a very weird game about a um, <laughs> where you play as the AI inside the suit of a xenobiologist exploring an alien planet, which is a, an unusual pitch. It's a game where you explore an alien planet, an alien ocean, without ever seeing that ocean or planet because all you ever right. see is sonar and signals and descriptions from the biologist and things like this. Um, that game did, did pretty well, especially seeing as I basically made it myself. Um, and that allowed me to... to pitch another game but it also meant that i made a i made a classic mistake um at the end of in other waters i budgeted the amount of funding i'd need up until launch and then i got to launch and i realized that i didn't have any money because the game had (laughs) launched and if the game made money i was not going to get that money for months um and so I was like, wow, I really didn't think this through. I really didn't imagine there was a world beyond the launch date of my video game. <laughs> sure. I just thought that's, that was it. That's the end. Nothing happens after then. Um, so I had to pitch something pretty fast to try and get some prototype funding from my, my publisher, who, who are wonderful and very supportive. And um, I sent them a PDF and they agreed to give me some money to develop Citizen Sleeper. And so nice. Citizen Sleeper came, kind of came together pretty fast as a lightweight project um, that would come off yeah. the back of, of Fin of the Waters. That's kind of, yeah, how I kicked that project off. Sure. Do you think that Citizen Sleeper continued to be a lightweight project or did it just gather momentum as you started getting deeper and deeper into it? Because it seems to me like it is an escalation from from In Other Waters. Uh, not saying In Other Waters is bare by any means, but like the the difference between the two does feel like you scaled up a bit, like it you uh, added depth and, and a, a bit more breadth to what you were doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because the I, I, I understood a lot more about how to build a system that could do a lot and be quite simple. And that was kind sure. of the, the thing with Citizen Sleeper. So I would consider Citizen Sleeper to be a pretty lightweight game in terms of it has really like a couple of systems in the whole game. Um, it basically is just the dice system. It's just that the dice system, the whole thing with Citizen Sleeper is that the dice system kind of has the capacity to carry so many different narratives. And that's what really excited me about trying to, to implement a system like that, a kind of universal abstract system that could tell a lot of different stories. While this, the system that exists in, in Other Waters can only really tell the In Other Waters story. Sure. And um, so I wanted to develop a system like that. So it's kind of lightweight, but the, the weird thing about Citizen Sleeper, I think, is that as a game, it's it was kind of an experiment in making something that has a certain universal ability to cover, to, to have one system which controls almost every interaction in the game and to make something quite lightweight in a single location. But at the same time, I think that having been successful within Other Waters, successful enough to get another shot, my feeling was that I really wanted to make something that I felt was really meaningful to me and captured things that I would want to say if I only had one opportunity to say things. It felt like this was an opportunity. So 
while it's, it's kind of systemically and structurally lightweight, I think it's pretty, it occupies a pretty heavyweight place in my mind in terms sure. of it was me trying to assemble years of my life and experiences and other people's experiences that I've observed and the, my thoughts about society more widely into a, into a game. And so I guess, I mean, I guess that makes sense because in a way as a solo developer, I can't make complex content in complex systems. I kind of have to have to go for one or the other. And so I guess yeah. with Citizen Sleeper, the, the idea was that kind of simple systems imply complex content while complex systems imply simple content, right? If you, sure. if you build like an elaborate structure for telling stories, then you, you might only end up telling very simple stories. But if you build a simple universal system, you can tell like a huge number of different types of stories in that. That was kind of the, the bet I was making, I guess. Yeah, sure. I think it paid off. I think the bet paid off. I love the thing I love most, I think, about Citizen Sleeper is that like because the framework is simple and it, it allows those that breadth of storytelling, it it also includes the ability for the player to manipulate how they uh, approach that story. Uh, and like even with the people that I know that play through it as we were talking through it back in May when we were all just getting into it, I had of the like four or five friends that are tabletop adjacent friends that get into things like that. Um, cause I have friends that play as shooters only and I was like, play this game. And they played for an hour and they were like, eh, that's fine. That's not their thing. But of my friends that like I play tabletop with, uh, and we do, we do world design and world building with, it was interesting to encounter that like all of our conversations were each of us going through the different drives in citizen sleeper in completely different ways. And therefore it changed our decision process. Um, my uncle's playthrough, for instance, he did the sidereal like immediately and just left. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's wild. Because to me, and I don't know why, but at some point while playing through the first couple of the drives, my brain was like, that's a ship. We're going to build it. There's going to be an option to leave. I'm not going to do that till later till I figure out like if this is a place I want to leave. And he was just like, oh, it seems like my person wants to get, it seems like my sleeper wants to get out or get away. So I'm gonna do that first. Uh, and I love that it allows that kind of, that kind of difference. Um, when it comes to procedural narrative um, and, you know, like as your interest uh, in those things grows or has changed over time, is the procedurality of those narratives based purely in mechanics or do you also look at that through the lens of like players adapting and changing the way the narrative is delivered to them by their interaction does that make sense is that question yeah totally no that makes okay. lots of sense that that's exactly i mean that's exactly it really is what i that's what i learned from my phd is that i understood that at least the way i kind of wanted to conceive of um narrative in this kind of work is that you can build these really complex systems that procedurally deliver an art, something like Wildermyth or whatever, right? Where you've got these sure. layers and layers of, of systems that are driving a narrative and allowing for possibilities. But that wasn't very realistic for me, um, especially because I, while I do program my games, I'm not really a, a kind of programmer by, by experience. I'm kind of a programmer sure. by necessity, sure. but I am a writer. And what I kind of understood is that the ways in which people understand procedural or random things um, 
as narrative is kind of how we live in the world, right? That's what narrative is. That's how, that's why we have, why we use narrative on a daily basis to like tell people, we tell ourselves stories about our day and how our day went. Um, sure. And we try to kind of formalize a series of events that might be kind of random or procedural or kind of like affected by rules outside of us into something which makes sense for us. We, we kind of say to ourselves, oh yeah, like it was this kind of day because of these events or whatever. Sure. And I feel like that energy is the kind of energy I really wanted to capture in Citizen Sleeper is try to introduce chance into the world through the dice and introduce kind of variance or freedom through having all of the plot lines that you can kind of pick and choose what you're doing. And I kind of trusted that the player would narrativize the relationships between those events if I gave enough material to to create the connective tissue. So for example, like the Lemamina plotline, uh, the sidereal plotline, like you babysit Mina in that plotline and yeah. you just get tiny bits of text that kind of suggest what that is but that in a way that allows me to imply a lot of scenes that i never have to show um yeah, i sure. think a lot of people in their minds kind of invent like what what it feels like for them uh, for mina and sleeper to hang out but there's not actually like i, I give you a scene right at the beginning to give you kind of like a, a a feeling of what that might feel like and then i can just give these little bits of text um and the player will kind of fill in the fill in the gaps there and like sure. bring it to life. And so I really wanted to do that. I really felt like that was the strength of uh, taking inspiration from tabletop games, especially. It's just that that um, trust in the kind of narrativizing process that when that you can give, you can kind of make a breadcrumb trail that will uh, that will make narratives feel very close and personal to people because they are the one kind of filling in the gaps. And there's definitely a delicate art to getting those gaps at the right scale, right? If those gaps are too big, sure. they can't they can't be filled in. And if they're too small, there's no space. So you really, it's really like a subtle game. But that was something that I really tried very hard to focus on. So when I hear you saying, or like other people saying like, oh, I, you know, I did this because of this. Like I, I when people say like, oh, I fed the cat every day because I just wanted to, <laughs> or um, I occasionally go back to check in on like one of my friends or, and just, you know, I narrativize that in my mind. That's like, that's exactly what I want to hear. That's like the dream for me to, to know that sure. people are doing that. Yeah, 100%. I remember specifically the moment where Lem's like, because it's right after, uh, and I, won't, I don't want to get into like big, bold spoilers, uh, but it's uh, it's right after part of the sidereal mission goes awry and Lem has to like find a way to fill uh, their bellies, right? Find a way to make a little bit of money in between figuring things out. And he doesn't know what to do and you're like oh, i could i could babysit mina that's fine which is funny because like when you first meet her she's like robot man and does not like you <laughs> necessarily and i found a lot of i, I had a lot of a, a lot of truck with that because as a parent there's this weird occurrence that happens with children uh at least in my experience and i know some people have shared it where there's this feeling as a father at initially that like there when you're child is home the first time that you are like it's kind of like a usurper in your house that's a that's a maybe a word with too much negative connotation but you feel almost like you're the stranger in your house and that the child is there to take your place and so like the first couple of years of having a kid at home is very much convincing that kid that like no I'm here to help and I'm <laughs> I'm here to like make sure things work and I'm here to protect you and feed you and make sure you're clean 
And so that moment when I was like, no, nah, I could I could babysit. That's fine. I re- remembered specific memories of like my apartment when my daughter was just like one and like sitting on the floor and farting around with toys, just like kind of trying to approach that borderline of like, I'm cool. I'm cool. Like, don't worry. I'm cool. I, I could play with these things, too. Uh, and so I attached a lot of that stuff throughout the game. Um, and I wrote a very lengthy piece, which I, I sent to you. And I appreciate you taking the time to to read. When I started that, um, and I don't know, I don't remember if I mentioned this specifically in the in the piece, but most of the time, because I'm an indie journalist, I, a few years ago, realized, like, I've been doing this for a decade. I have made some some inroads with people so that I get some code a little bit early, but most of the time it's like day of because I'm indie. They're like, hey, it's launch day. Here's a, here's a code. And without making a long story long, there's differences in the kind of review coverage that like blogs or, or, or magazines will put out in that like if you get code early enough, you write a review that you intend people to read as they're in the decision-making process, right? And they'll come to a website and go, okay, yeah, I'm going to go buy this game. Knowing that I didn't have that early access, most of my reviews since realizing that have changed to, okay, I can't write this in enough time for someone to go, I'm going to go read this and then buy it. So instead, the game's going to be out for a little bit and people are going to have played it for a little bit. So I write about games in a way that illustrates my personal journey with them. So... That being said, I started writing about Citizen Sleeper almost immediately. Uh, I also finished it in like four or five days. I was like, I gotta, I'm, all, I'm only doing this. A couple of, a couple of nights I abandoned our multiplayer uh, game nights with friends because I was like, I'm sorry, I just gotta do it. But I think I intended to write like a 3,000 word, hey, this was super good and impactful and like it stuck with me and then before I knew it, and I didn't plan for it, but before I knew it, it had gone beyond 3,000 words to like five and six. And then I had this moment where I didn't write about it for like two months, and I was like, great, maybe that thread's just gone. And then I there's a portion in there where I write about my relationship with my father, and I was writing that at the kitchen table, and I turned it around and showed it to my wife, and she just sat back and was like, that's why you haven't been able to write this for three months. And it was, like I was... I imposed a writer's block on myself Mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't want to write about a thing. But as soon as I pushed through that, here we are, right? It's it's like a 16,000 word thing that I've never done before. Um, But the reason I bring that up is that like Citizen Sleeper existed in a place where it allowed me to attach what I needed to attach to it, which sounds like it was very much your goal. And I find it entertaining that like games like this are the things that hit me the hardest most of the time. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of strategy or tactics, um, sorry, specific games, but like games like XCOM prior to this were the thing that did this most to me, right. largely because they give you a, a, a full roster of characters, right? And leave their story completely blank and you contextualize and 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 narrativize why they're important as you play through and what citizen sleeper did is essentially it feels like that but it also happened to drive its narrative in a direction that my brain was already compatible with 
Hmm. Right. It's commentary on capitalism, both late stage and posthumous capitalism, right? As it's fail, as it's growing too big to succeed. And then as it's failing catastrophically and the people that are left over by it and living in America and trying to understand what it means to raise kids or be a successful and healthy adult <laughs> is constantly like, is this system going to survive long enough yeah. to outlive me, right? Uh, yeah, it just had so many different places I could plug things in. Yeah. And part of that realization while playing it was uh, not supplanted, but overcome by the realization of me writing about it later that like, oh my God, I'd attached a lot more shit to what we were, what I was playing through. Uh, and I think that's really, I think that's really unique about it. You you mentioned aiming right for that that zone between providing too much context and providing too little context. Was that something that was difficult to balance? Was that something that you had a little bit of experience, or maybe not experience, but had a little bit of a measuring stick for coming after uh, in other waters, which was much less a choose your own meaning, not choose your own adventure, but choose your own meaning. Or was that something that you had to draft and redraft? Yeah, I mean, um, I first I want to say the piece the piece you wrote is really beautiful and and I really love to read it. So I'm Thank so you. glad that 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 process happened. Um, I found it really emotional to read that piece um, because it yeah it connects to so many things in the game, but it's also obviously your own and that there's something really beautiful there to me. Um, so I yeah it's it's incredible. It feels um, like, yeah, a real blessing to be able to read a piece like that because I don't necessarily get to see what's happening in people's minds when they play the game. And so people tell me like, oh, I really meant something to me, but to have like such a huge volume of material that they kind of really <laughs> get digs into all this stuff is like, oh, it's incredible. It feeds me, makes me excited to, to work on this stuff. But Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I think the... Um, I think the process, that process is definitely something that starts within Other Waters because in Other Waters, I, I had this belief when I started in Other Waters that um, that there's a huge potential in games for play that happens like between me and the screen. And there was a couple of games I played where I was thinking of that when I was working on Other Waters. They're, they're totally different games, but one of them was Duskers, which I guess in a way is, is a bit like XCOM. It's like a game where you control these little drones and you yeah. drive them around spaceships, salvaging them. And that game kind of has like all the drones have their own little bleeps and their own little names, a bit like XCOM people. And so you kind of build a relationship with these drones, but you also never really see the spaceships. You only ever see the signals. And the... and I found that game to be really remarkable because the way the the character in the game is supposed to be sat at a chair with a keyboard typing commands to drones and that's exactly what you do as a player and that means there's this kind of funny virtual reality quality to it sure yeah. and then the other the other kind of re totally random reference for me was like uh, the last of us where uh, in that game sometimes like ellie um will have like a button prompt above her head and you can talk to her and when you try to, when you go and you try to talk to her because you're the player and you're excited to hear more about her and her life, uh, Joel will start talking to her. But because Joel is such like a terrible curmudgeon of a character, he sure. will just basically immediately shut down the conversation in a really, uh, like really difficult way. Like he just doesn't know how to talk to Ellie. Yeah. And I always love this. It's like my favorite thing in The Last of Us, which is, it's just such a, it's a beautiful 
it, it's a beautiful example of how like players always want to know more about the world and more about the characters. But if you create this tension, this like resistance where you're kind of blocking off information or pulling things away, then it, it, it only like increases the strength of that feeling. So sure. I had this feeling that like both you had you had the potential of gaps to be spaces that could be filled by by people and by their imaginations, but also that like you need a tension in there. If you just create gaps without the tension, then the the force coming from the um, the player to want to fill those gaps is very small. And so I think a lot of that came into the design of Citizen Sleeper in terms of like wanting to create these conditions of difficulty where you're having to deal with the dice you know daily and you're having to deal with the idea of waking up every morning and not knowing how much energy you're going to have to give to the world and whether or not you're going to be able to do the things you need to do or whether you're going to have to just drop out or all of this stuff that that felt super familiar to me um that 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 combined with the kind of like gappiness of the game with the spaces that the player could fill in the fact that i never show the interior of any of the places in the game you know it's like I want to I want to have those gaps there, but I, I don't think you get the the need to fill them unless you have that really you ha you have a space for the player to engage. Like if it was just a visual novel and you just kind of click through the text, I'm sure it would be impactful. But I don't think I don't think it would um, instigate the same kind of attachment. I think it's there's something sure. about that the chemistry of. Um, the, knowing that the game needs you to do something, you need to struggle with it and then to have those spaces that you can fill in seem somehow seems to to work. So it was definitely an experiment though, you know. Like when I when I sure. when I finished Citizen Sleeper, it's not like I sat back and I was like, ah yes, it's <laughs> it's you know, it's ready. Like it's gonna yeah, work. Sure. I know. I had no idea. Like I really I really thought I was terrified about Steam reviews of the game because I felt like it was a very unusual game that I felt like people would not be able to follow. I felt like it was a really difficult game to tutorialize. It was really hard for people who haven't played tabletop games to get into. And so I was, yeah, I was really nervous about how the game would be received. And I was so incredibly surprised and amazed to see how positive the user reviews were, right? I kind of expected like critics might kind of be like, oh, this is something interesting. This is different. And that usually gets a good response if you're an indie game, if you're trying to do something unusual. But I really didn't expect people to come back to me and say, hey, this is a this means something to me and this relates to my life. Um, yeah. And that's 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 what I wanted. I wanted to make a game that felt like it, that, that that was trying to reach at things that I felt were happening to to my generation and to the people around me and that, that felt attentive to those moments. But yeah, I didn't I didn't know it would work. Um, so I don't know. It's a it's. It's very structural. And I guess the other thing it is, is it's very much in the prose. I think it's very much as a writer. I. It's funny when you were talking about the parenting stuff because I worked in childcare as well for many years and I have a, have a six-year-old daughter and um, definitely that scene where you have to use objects to kind of negotiate your position yeah. in relation to Mina was totally based off my experience of what it's like to try to deal with kids when you first meet them. You so often have to find like a, an object or a thing or a place or something that can allow you to come closer to them without them kind of being aware that you're coming closer to them or focusing on them. This like this yeah. indirect game where you have to not look directly at the child. You have to kind of like approach them somehow. And it's, yeah, I, I don't know. So I think... 
you know, a lot of the writing in Citizen Sleeper comes from a, a lot of experience of meeting different people and being in different places. And just, I think that's just always the way as a writer, you, you kind of, you gather up material as you live, uh, you yeah. gather up characters and people and, um, and Citizen Sleeper, like I said, was me trying to pour a lot of that out and really, really sit there and think about the characters and think about their, think about what it would really feel like to be them and um, what each scene was to really like try and get myself into the scene and say like, oh, what's happening here? Like, what are the, what, where are the details that are going to make this feel rich, that are going to make this feel, feel real to people? Um, sure. Yeah. So uh, I think a good portion of the ability for people to connect does come of course it comes from the writing and the the formatting of how the stories are delivered but i also think that it's pretty obvious that the mode of interaction that players have through dice controls a lot of that ability for people to connect and it's super interesting because one it feels very much tabletop in fact in <laughs> this is a bit of a funny aside in my classes I teach at a university here in St. Louis, I try to end every semester with a D&D game. It's a very abridged version of D&D <laughs> and often uses less particular dice to do things. But uh, last semester, which was my first semester teaching, I used a form of your dice system to change combat so that rather than having to roll like to attack and then find out how much damage they do, Instead, they told me what they wanted to do, and then they rolled the d6 to see how likely they were to be able to do that, and then like what effect they would have based on that d6, and then we would roll damage or based on what the the thing that they did uh, allowed them to do. And so, I think that there's this this way of approaching this game where you you give people more of a like you have energy that you spend, and things cost so much energy to do, which isn't absent from citizen sleeper but i think the the weight on waking up and getting a random roll of dice that is directly linked to how well uh physically well your sleeper is uh is fascinating because and i, I wrote about it and you've mentioned it already that like waking up and being like i have a bunch of things to do i have all ones and twos shit or waking up and being like oh i got a bunch of fours fives and sixes uh, I could do all sorts of things today and not really having any drives to accomplish currently, especially like if you're working with uh, Fang or any of the other characters that will like periodically pop in with things to do and then pop away to do something else in the background. Uh, what kind of thought process went into weighing so much of the games, the, the players' interactability on, on dice? Because like, of course there are places you can interact without dice, right? You can spend scrap or you can buy things or you can, for instance, go to like Emphasis stall and eat and that doesn't cost any dice. But all of the pushing forward of the drives is tied to this, this dice system. What was, I guess, a broad question, the motivation to move to dice because in other waters doesn't outwardly show uh, dice. Um, yeah. And then, like, how did that process, how did you work through that process? Yeah, I mean, I think I was, you know, I really discovered tabletop games while working on um, 
in other waters. I I was aware of tabletop games, but I'd never really engaged with contemporary tabletop games. And I think the most imp- I tried to play Dungeons and Dragons like many years ago, and just kind of completely it bounced off it completely. Um, but I found a game, Blades in the Dark, which I I Ooh. started to play, and I played sure. it. I, I my little brother came to visit me, and uh, we went to Forbidden Planet. Um, and I picked up a copy of Blades in the Dark, and then I was just, hey, why don't we just play this? Because I would got into this habit of listening to RPGs um, on actual pay podcasts and like reading RPGs and buying PDFs and stuff and never playing them, um, just kind of being <laughs> oh, no. interested in it but not having people to play with. And so because my little yeah. brother was right there, I was like, right, let's just play this. Let's just like roll a character for you. Let's let's run this. I'll I'll run it. And it was just fantastic. Like the the Blades in the Dark system is so simple and so effective. Um, I think because it it's a D six system, which makes it very accessible. But it's also kind of it's it's um, it gives so much agency to the player because the player can the 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 you know in in Blades in the Dark the DM sets like the the conditions and the like the the risk um, and the condition. So in in Blades you say like a a role. Let's say I want to do something. I want to sneak into this this like um, location. Uh, then the 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 GM will be like, okay, that's a it's a risky action, uh, which means you kind of know what consequences you're going to get, and um, that affects like how the player then decides what to do. And then depending on what skill they choose, it's like that's how many d6 they're going to roll. And most of the time, the outcome is you do it but there's a consequence like 90% yeah. of the time and that, and that means that blades because it's it's generally a heist game it's just modeling these systems where it's like you progress but there's a complication and then there's more complications and more complications and everything starts building up and getting chaotic and and crazy and um the the element of chance that the dice introduced to blades is, is so exciting to me and it was so interesting and such a good storytelling device because it's essentially just an and then improvisation because there's always something else popping off like as you go there's always like oh i gotta deal with this and i gotta deal with this and then and it just rolls and rolls and i re- yeah i really enjoyed that and i was playing that and i was just thinking like why has nobody tried to like i always i've only ever encountered dice in games as a kind of like yes no like an XCOM thing, right? You have an 80% sure. chance to make the shot. And it's like, you either make the shot or you don't make the shot. There's no, sure. like, you do it, but with, there's a consequence. Which it, I think, like, a version of XCOM where most of the time there was a consequence for trying to do something could be an incredible game, right? Yeah. Like, it, the way that could, like, balloon out and become this chaotic system could be fascinating. So, <laughs> yeah. so I was just like, yeah, I was enamored with that. Um, but I didn't necessarily have a game for it. And then I guess when I was developing Citizen Sleeper, I knew that Citizen Sleeper would be, because it, like I was saying, it was kind of like my, I felt like it was my shot. I was like, okay, I want to make the game that I've wanted to make for a long time, which is a science fiction game about uh, regular people or about that I can relate to. Because I, sure. I love science fiction, but I find so much science fiction to be about people who I really, if I met them in real life, I, I wouldn't like them, right? Like Commander Shepard is not somebody who I think I said in another interview, like he reminds me of bosses I've had, not like friends I've had, right? Like, <laughs> sure. yeah, absolutely. And so, <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I want to make a game that's science fiction, but it's about what it, what I feel like my life has been like, and what it, and what it feels I feel like the people around me, the experiences they've had, and what it means to be a person now, and the things we contend with, the struggles we face every day, and um, to me. 
chance seemed to be a very big factor in my life and other people's life around me. It's especially the times when I was unemployed or was working bad jobs. It was like the chance of me being able to make a shift or not make a shift because of delays of a train or the chance of me being able to even pay for a train ticket to get to do the shift to make more money or the chances that I was sick at the only day of the week when I actually had a shift offered to me, even though sure. I spent the entire week with nothing to do being perfectly healthy. Yeah. This kind of situations that I went through were kind of like, yeah, this is all about chance. And when you're when you don't have a lot of resources, chance is like has a huge disproportionate effect on your life. Um, and so to me, that kind of melded in my head to be like, well, dice are a great way of exploring how chance um, is a big part of living a precarious life or, or living a life in a system that, that doesn't care about you and what happens to you. You know, you kind of chance is the thing you have to rely on. And I think that modeled with just, yeah, the, the wanting to have a loop that, that felt like that thing of, of um, waking up in the morning and, and being like, okay, what's today? Like doing, living a day at a time. Um, yeah. I, that was, those were kind of all of the focuses that I wanted to do. So I spent a lot of time kind of messing around with dice and making pen and paper kind of versions of citizens, the citizen sleeper system until I settled on one. And I think that the moment when I realized it would work is when I was, I made this really simple version where I just had a lot of stacks of index cards with things written on them. And I just had to put a certain number on those index cards to turn them over. And then when I turn them over, I would, that would progress the, the story. Sure. And so it'd be like, you know, it'd be like 20 would be the number written on a card. So I would know, okay, I put a six today. That means there's 14 left to go in there. And that was the simplest version of Citizen Sleeper. And the first time when I was playing that and I rolled like four ones, I was just like, oh yeah, this works. Like this system <laughs> works because sure. my brain was immediately like, go back to bed, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this just, yeah, like everybody knows what that feels. Everyone is the rolled all ones uh, yep. on a morning. So it's, yeah. I did, once I saw that that was working, I was like, okay, yeah, this system's going to do what I want it to do. It's going to, it's going to tell a story even without words. It's just going to tell a story just systemically, which is what I was really looking for. Um, really looking for something that would, would encourage people to, narrativize like what does rolling for ones mean to you how does that make you feel about what you've got to do in that day sure sure and i've heard people contextualize it differently i know people that have contextualized the different dice rolls as being uh resemblant of their struggle with chronic illness i've heard people talk about uh well in, at least in my experience the my struggle with chronic depression which isn't not chronic illness it's for yes. some reason i separated them <laughs> no no i'd uh, say same i mean it's for me it's very much modeling depression in part that's definitely my i've had sure. little, yeah long experiences with depression in my life and and yeah but i equally i'm like yeah also chronic illness it's like how, where these things sit yeah where these things cross over in our brains is funny yeah and the way you like try not to uh overstep your situation into someone else's yeah. like no absolutely yours is valid and different uh, but it's also similar and if not the same close enough that it can be, uh, it can be represented, you know, in the same mechanic. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of different times in, in citizen sleeper where I was like, you know what? I, I got, 
I got ones and twos, which you do allow players to use, right? Because you give them the ability to flip over the map and look at the 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 underside of the of the eye, not the underside, but the the digital like little nodes to hack and things that often use ones and twos, which allows you to even if you have a quote bad day, uh, do what I I guess contextualizes the equivalent of like working from home and just doing <laughs> things on the computer. Um, but there were a bunch of different ways that like I would sometimes even if I had ones and twos to do those things, be like, eh, I really need this to work. And like, I've got plus two on this specific uh, engage role. So like, I'm gonna use the one and it's gonna have a chance of failing, but like, yeah, I could go grab this, this Havenage uh, node, but I really want, like, I really wanna get further in the Emphis story, or I really need to get this thing done before Ethan comes to collect. Uh, so you, you make sacrifices, right? Or you take chances. And I think that really runs in parallel to how people have to live life. Like the biggest struggle with being an adult isn't work per se. It's the like constant Rubik's cube of figuring out like, is this going to work in my benefit so that I can do this later? And the fact that most of those interactions as an adult are tied to just chance is both frustrating and reassuring, right? Because like sometimes you're like, you know what, it could work out and it does. And you're like, great. There was no reason for this to go as well as it did, but it did. <laughs> and then there's times where you're like, this will be fine. I, I have this in the bag. I don't have to worry about it. And then something goes wrong and you're like, fuck, what the, why? Why did this have to go wrong today? Uh, and I think that dice system works extremely well for illustrating exactly that. Uh, when it yeah. came to, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, I, and I think that I, I mean, it's super glad to hear that, and I think that's exactly what I was going for. But they also the fun thing, I think, like you were saying, that it's not just about ones and twos are bad because I, it allowed me to model certain things that, that it, which were really fun to model. For example, like Tala's bar, is like it's one of those jobs that like it's you can use a one place. or a two there, yeah. and, and and like it's okay, right? Because it, it made right. me realize that I could model things like that. I could model those relationships. Like, I, I, I guess this is what I, I mean by, like, trying to be attentive to experiences I've had and experiences I've seen other people have. And I think, you know, I'm very glad of having those experiences. But, like, being able to, I, I really, it felt important to me to have, like, a, like, have those places you can go and, like, be bad at your job. And, yeah, like, maybe it doesn't turn yeah. out quite so well. But it's, like, it's okay. It's an okay place to yeah. have a bad day and some yeah. places are not good places to have bad days some jobs sure. you, you 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 like if you're having a bad day you're like i'm just not gonna go in because yeah. nothing good yeah. will happen and it's better i'm not there well there's other places where you're like man i'm having a terrible day but i'm just gonna go in anyway and yeah. everyone will be okay with it and yeah so like i was definitely really wanted to to model all those subtle variations and those different feelings that I, like you say are like that's a way to narrativize it right like to encourage mm -hmm. to try and trust that the player would get what i was doing um and let them like tell that story yeah if i have a shitty day i can go to the bar i just might not make as many tips because when people talk yeah, yeah. i don't i don't give a fuck about what you're saying but <laughs> i'm not gonna take that same energy to an engineering job because i'll cut my <laughs> hand off like there's a big yeah. difference and that works out there I well, you brought it up, so let's we can we can transition into that. 
my two favorite places, I think, in this game are Tala's Bar, the, the Overlook, and later Bantian, and then Emphasis Stall, which obviously centered around uh, food service, uh, a thing that I've been familiar with intimately most of my life. So I guess before getting into specifically food, which we will inevitably do, um, what uh, what places did you research? What places did you try to, to imitate in building out Erlen's Eye? Because it's, it's not just a singular place as much as it is a singular location. It's got a lot of difference along the rim of the eye, and then also it's got the, the hub in the center. What, uh, yeah, what places did you look to try and try and draw influence or inspiration from? Yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to put as many bars as possible in the in the game, sure. because I just, I love bars in fiction. I just love the, I, I don't know, I'm a big, I'm, I worked in bars and, um, I don't know. I just there's something about the ways in which different bars express so much about different places True. that I really that was like a big part of building out the eye. So I knew you know like was the the overlook was like one of the first ever. In fact, I think it was probably the first like node I ever put in the game. Right? It's just True. like okay, there's got to be there's got to be a bar. Like there has to be a yep. bar way where like things can happen. Um, that's the center of of the social activity. But then. It, there was, I don't know, there was loads of stuff, but I think a big influence on the game was the Kowloon Walled City, um, which is like a bit of Hong Kong um, that was basically left between uh, Chinese and British colonial rule and ended up being this kind of, it's kind of famous for being this unregulated single block of, um, of urbanism where like people just built on top of buildings on top of buildings in an illegal way because there wasn't any police force because technically sure. there was no administration um and the whole eye is kind of slightly modeled on those there's a few other places like that in history places that kind of fell between the cracks and they ended up being these kind of unlegislated spaces so the the eye generally i wanted to have a space where it's like it's kind of an unlegislated place and you're always in like different people's jurisdiction and there's no like but there's no clear definitions of like what there's no police there's no like law right. as such there's only like various different factions trying to impose their version of the law on right. different places um because i find that fascinating and exciting and i find that even if even in a city like london which is obviously like heavily surveilled and full of police and there still exists that kind of to me cities always follow those rules even if there's yeah. a big overarching rule there's always places in the cities where things run by different rules and, and sure. people behave in different ways and communities build themselves in different ways so i really wanted to build to build something that felt like that i had this incredible book about the kowloon world city because i think you know my my reticence to, to basing anything off the kowloon world city is it's a very well-known reference that is usually used just as a visual reference and sure. so instead of doing that, I actually just spent, I've got a book which is full of interviews with people who live there. And I spent a lot of time with that material and trying to think more about the, the what what was it like to live in that place? Because there's this such fascinating, there were people like, you know, running noodle factories out of their like living room because everyone was just like running something out of their living room, right? Like sure, the dentists, yeah. every, it was just a series of apartments with everything from like dentists noodle factories, schools, like bakeries, um, restaurants. And so you get all these interviews with all these people and all these intersecting lives. And, and a lot of them are all obviously like performing some kind of service. 
Um, and so I think that was, yeah, generally when I was building out the eye, I was thinking about those kind of experiences. I was thinking about, I know the people also I see in my community, the, the, like, I know like the, the people who run the dry cleaners or like the, the kind of like the, the local restaurants, cafes, like the people you meet in places and how running those services makes you, puts you in the community, but also separates it from you. How like people's personalities become like everybody kind of gets to know people's personalities through, you know, that like, oh, that, that guy who works at like that one place yeah, is sure. like a bit funny. <laughs> and then, you know, it's, I don't know, like these textures, these textures that to me are like what makes a city a city um, more than anything else is what yeah. I wanted. So I spent a lot of time just kind of, yeah, like looking around me um, and also researching, yeah, specifically like Kowloon World City and other similar situations where the, the people were left to kind of make their own communities. Um, because I, I also really wanted the game to, to like push away the idea that when you remove legislation, you get chaos because I don't think there's any evidence that that is the sure. fact. So. Sure. I really wanted to make a game that was about what people build when when they have space to build. And sometimes it's bad and sometimes it's good. And sometimes people just replicate the old systems because that's all they know. And other people try to build new things, but they're not really sure how it might work. And you get all these overlapping and interlocking interlocking layers of this. And yeah, that that that's what excites me about urban sure. spaces, about cities and people. So. I was just kind of like cramming as much of that yeah. into the, the game as possible as I was going, I think. Yeah. And so yeah, I, places like, like Emphasis Stall or like the Overlook are totally like part of that. Sure. 100%. I, I always find it interesting when I talk to people, at least in the States, uh, that's my main frame of reference. But when I talk to people about cities, largely the conversation is dictated by two things. It's how busy they are or how big they are. And I'm always confronted by this feeling of like, people just don't understand me. Uh, and it's it's weird to try and contextualize uh, a different way until relatively recently when I realized the reason I dislike talking about cities and living in a city uh, as, as a small city that thinks it's bigger, St. Louis, is I constantly want to talk to people about cities and like, why they're cool and why I love them. And by and large, living in the Midwest, people are like, eh, there's too many people, it's too busy or it's too big. And I think that the, the problem I have with that is that the way I like to discuss or approach cities isn't, like if someone says there's too many people, I'm like, that's the best part. <laughs> like I wanna <laughs> talk about cities like socioeconomically, anthropologically, right? I wanna talk about cities as they are collections and pockets of people right in undulating spaces that are just constantly flowing back and forth with people or in like weirdly intimate spaces tucked into much more busy spaces like totally. they're little hole in the wall punk bars that like are in a neighborhood of people that are walking around in suits and ties like how <laughs> the fuck does that place exist here like how am i in the financial district of this area and there's a bar that's only ever playing like anti-government punk music and like the people down the street are managing hedge funds and billionaires <laughs> and this place is like yeah fuck those people <laughs> and it's always full like that bar is always full and i always wonder like how many people take off their suit when they get home and put on who they are 
and then go back to that bar that's right next door to where they work. And how many people do that next to people that they work with in the regular day? Like that, that kind of, <laughs> uh, that kind of human interaction of like, yeah, these two people when they're at work use words and jargon that would make me have to open a thesaurus specifically in the financial section. But when they're at this bar, they're like drinking the same shitty beer, talking about the same thing and reminiscing to days when they were in mosh pits. Um, so knowing that you used like the Kowloon Wall City, but not, I mean, sure, as a visual reference in, in places, because I think there are some places on the eye that like my brain was like, oh, this is cyberpunk as shit. And without trying, Kowloon Wall City very much does look <laughs> like something you see in Blade Runner. <laughs> Um, but looking at that specific human adaptation, not even creation, right? Cause I don't think that like people created it for the purpose that it serves now, but like just yeah, yeah. created on top of it. And then it became a thing and they had to adapt that thing to work. Uh, I love that, that I think that came through in citizen sleeper is that like all of the places rather than feeling like, Oh, this is, this is a, a favela style place, or this is a, the financial area it's more focused on what at least in my own narrativization of what i experienced it's more focused on who's there and what they're doing as opposed to what it is they are living in and how it impacts them though that is also there right because you have haifa uh in the greenway that is very much impacted by the fact that there is there's foliage and vegetation in this area and they're able to build their community based on that and impact that also, I, I, this is a bit of an aside. I was, I'm trying to get into an older arc of Friends of the Table, and they play through a dialect game, which is one of my favorite tabletop games because language. Uh, and they named their com their their the group of people the Haifa, and I was like, wait a second, <laughs> I've heard this name before. Uh, so it's funny you mentioned earlier that you listen to like actual play podcasts, and I'm I'm not saying you stole that name because it is just a name for a type of. Uh, mushroom right it's yeah like con the connective like roots of a, right. of a fungus basically yeah, yeah yeah i just saw that and was like oh that's funny those things are, yeah, are similar yeah. i don't think i i think i don't i think i was aware of that i know exactly the episode you mean it's a great episode yeah um, it's great and i love all the the hypha stuff and dialect is an incredible game and i think yeah, yeah i mean that kind of adaptive i mean that that's kind of the blessing that came i guess with um with doing the work that I did when I was kind of trying to build a life for myself in London is like, I worked for a whole ton of places. I worked for places that would finish at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and I'd work for places that finish at 3 a.m. in the night. And the people you see and the layers of the city that you get to experience when you work a lot of different jobs and you meet, and as like an agency staff person, basically someone who gets called in when like there isn't enough staff you also just drop into environments and you're just like, oh, hi, I'm here to work in the bar and I'm going to be working in the bar this weekend and I will never see you guys again. <laughs> never, um, yeah, I'll never be back. And, and like, I, I'm, and you get to know people and you kind of see a tiny window into a life. And I think as a writer, that was really addictive for me. I really like, got, I got so much material from that. But it really changed the way that I understood what a city was. And I think I was already oriented towards wanting to see that side of the city but that experience really made me be like oh cities are like there's so many cities piled on top of each other inside yeah. a single city there's so many people who think to themselves like oh this is what it's like to live in this city 
and that's only how it's like for to be them and live in this city actually like the person there's a person just down the road from them that has a completely different experience and they don't even know about it and yeah that's constantly fascinating um to me and so and i think also like you're talking about adaptation like I, i think the difference is also being in london like london is is it's literally a a ruin like most of it is sure is like ruined older buildings like nothing yeah. actually works particularly well <laughs> nothing is being used for the purpose like at least nowhere i ever go is a place that's being used for the purpose it was built for and so you're just kind of living constantly in ruins and that's always fascinated me because it's like we have to live with we have to live with a, a lot of history and a lot of weight that comes from history and we have to live with that constantly but we don't just live with that in terms of like having to deal with terrible political structures or we also have to deal with that in the fact that we have to like literally deal with the fact that our houses aren't properly insulated or the the tap the hot and cold taps are separate even though that makes no sense you know like we (laughs) yeah we just have to deal with like these daily frictions because of the past and because of how things were supposed to be in the past and that's also super fascinating to me so yeah, that's why with the eye, I was like, okay, this has to be a place that comes from somewhere and has been repurposed into something new because that to me is what a city is. It's a, it's like, it's a, an, an organism growing on top of like on top of a, the a load of or other yeah. organisms. <laughs> yeah. And like dead things and like, yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating. And yeah. I think that's where you get those really cool structures. Like you were saying about that, that like hole in the wall bar or whatever. And it's like, you, you get these like anomalies or things that just kind of the, the conditions that created them are not like reproducible, right? They just, it just happens. Right. And then yeah. it's like, okay, that's that, like, that's how this is. If you were to shuffle um, the pieces of a city and recast them onto a table, they would not land the same way again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that stuff's yeah. extremely fascinating. I, uh, I, I always find it fun to look at. I think that I discovered this initially much later than I would have hoped. But I played Valhalla, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, back in, oh, God, whenever it came out, 2020. Uh, and so only a couple of years ago, I was uh, kind of clued into this this idea that I now think about constantly. Because in that game, you go to London, and at the time, it's called Londinium. It's the, and it's not the Roman city Londinium, right? It's the Roman ruins that the city is built around of Londinium, and, like, I think in that moment, running through that city or, like, walking along the ruins on the top of it, I had this, like, eye-opening realization of, like, oh, man. Like, outside of the United States, because the United States is only 300-ish years old, uh, and and that's a blink in most other places, there are cities that are just, like, thousands of years old. And they, you, you walk into them now, and they're very modern, and they're... There's cameras everywhere and there's cars and lights and neon and LED just strewn about everywhere. But all those things oftentimes are like glued to the facade of something that has been there far longer. And it's super fascinating. I frequently tell people about the knowledge, the uh, the London cabbie test that people yeah, right. take transit. They take buses and trains for like 10,000 hours worth of time to try and study and learn the streets. And I, I frequently, when telling people about that, point out that, like, if you go to Seattle, learning those streets 
that city is like 70 years old in terms of its modernity, right? Like it's a couple hundred years old because of expansion, but like it's built in a almost perfect grid. It's right angles all over the place. It's very easy to learn how to navigate because east and west are like east is states, west is presidents, north is even numbers, south is odd numbers. And just like that, you've got it. But like St. Louis, which is a, like a hundred years older, is a very circular city because we used to build cities in circles, like emanating from the center. And then I take them and go, now look at the picture of London, <laughs> which is just this bowl of spaghetti splatted on top of the Thames. And it's like, see, like all of this stuff is built on millennia of interaction in this area. And that's yeah. extremely fascinating because what you get in the in the normal average modern person's day is walking past things that like people walked past 2000 years ago, a thousand yeah. years ago, but now it's a bar or now it's a coffee shop or now it's someone's shitty uninsulated apartment. That's got really bad electrical because like the whole building's made of stone and it's really hard to run electrical. Uh, that stuff's deeply fascinating. Yeah. No, it's funny that you bring up Valhalla because that's exactly the, the I literally bought Valhalla just for that reason, because that bit of <laughs> that's that incredible. bit of London's history fascinates me that like you really did have like the remains of an empire. I mean, which is also the ruin. I'm living in the remains of an empire too. And it's like, but yeah, this, this, this like, um, <laughs> this, you know, Roman empire structures. And then you had people kind of like building wooden structures inside them and around them is just so uh, incredible. I mean, I, I, part of my random jobs that I worked, I worked in a couple of the museums of London that exist in London, which have a history. and. Um, at the time I was living in a furniture warehouse in East London, which was from like uh, the 1870s. And I noticed that on the small, at the end where my flat was in this warehouse, um, the street kind of went up in like a weird lump. And I was always curious about why that lump was there, but I was just like, okay, it's, and you know, the road itself was like cobblestones that had then been like tarmacked over, but then some of the tarmac had kind of gone away. So there's like bits of cobblestone, bits of yeah. tarmac and this, this old furniture warehouse, which was now obviously not used to store furniture. It was used to store people, but it was incredibly cold because, you know, it was built for storing furniture, not for people to live in. And yeah. uh, I, when I was working at the, the Museum of London, I found some old maps, um, like in an exhibit and I started looking to see if I could find my street and what I discovered is that that mound was a civil war fortification um a defensive mound that was built in like the I guess it would be like the 16th century and then after that it was a plague grave uh, during the black death and I found an <laughs> etching of like of the, the of the mound like someone had done an etching of people burying like bodies into this fortification mound oh, and over man. time it had just been squashed down and built around and squashed down and squashed down until oh. it just became like the corner of where i lived yeah um, it just became a place you crazy. hit the brakes before you drive over it oh yeah, it's man like a, it's just like a little bump exactly like it's just a <laughs> spot where you're like i wonder why that bump is there and it's like oh yeah because there are like the compressed remains of hundreds of people under there. That's why, like, <laughs> oh, so, that's incredible. So, yeah. so that's London to me. That's like what sure. I, that's what I love about this place, but it's, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful uh, and terrifying. So, yeah. For the next several weeks, every bump I hit in the road, I'm going to be like, <laughs> are there bodies in there? 
That's is that incredible. A grave? Yeah, is, it a, is that a plague grave? That's amazing. So, you have Erlen's Eye, this place that was built by a company to be a to serve a very specific purpose, or at the very least, a series of specific purposes. And that company has long since failed, uh, fallen apart, this this uh, dissolved a bit, and now you've got people living in the remains in the in the carcass of this hyper capitalist uh regime this uh, almost imperial in a way and then they're building in and and adapting it to their needs and so it's lined with bars and food and i don't know if you intended this but uh as you read in my piece like i have a very hard time encountering food in anything and not tying it immediately to my experience with food in real life. I think that's obvious for most people. That should be something that anybody can at least familiarize themselves with in in some way. But I have this particular tie I make to most things, and that's through Anthony Bourdain, who was, you know, a food uh, a, a chef himself, a cook for years, and then when he was like forty eight, wrote a book that people really liked, and then all of a sudden had shows on the Travel Network and, and then CNN. And my family interacted with Bourdain's content. Uh, ugh, I hate that word. Interacted with Bourdain's shows uh, and, and books and recipes like crazy. And as a result, <laughs> I have this un... Uh, what, what am I trying to say? This unrelenting, I guess, uh, habit of seeing a small place that's, like, kind of dirty or just like obviously runs nonstop and doesn't have time to like make things look organized because organizations overrated sometimes when it comes to food and seeing both myself and Bourdain there in a way, of course, like not together, (laughs) separate, (laughs) but seeing myself there as like, I would love to go to this place because one, I can tell it's owned by very few people, if not the people working currently. And two, there's a difference to me, and I do. I I try to practice this everywhere I travel. There's a difference to me in ch- between chain restaurants and like small places you can't find anywhere else. My family will travel, and my my wife's family is very much, um, and this is no slight to them, but they are very much beasts of of habit. So we'll travel to Florida for a family vacation or something, and and it's well what do you want to get from Fridays or what do you want to get from Texas Roadhouse and I'm like <laughs> I'm going to go y'all order whatever I'm going to go find a place that like I'll never have anywhere else so I found myself throughout Citizen Sleeper like if you find the outlook or the overlook first uh or I did and then emphasis stall and then there's a like a delivery takeout place uh in low end and then yeah, Min- Minji's place. Yeah, Minji's place. And then interacting with the Haifa and eating some of their stuff. I found myself going through all these places and then like allowing my imagination to just run wild with what these places are. So when it came to building out not just the bars, but the food, the palate of the people of Erland's eye, like what what in well, obviously I think that there's the 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 connection you can make between like mushrooms and their durability uh as you know, things to grow in places where things often don't grow. But what kind of inspiration did you take in building out these these places to eat, these these things for players to interact with and eat at? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, mushrooms definitely are a huge symbol for the game. And um, yeah, like the, the, the book Mushroom at the End of the World, which is a book about um, Matsutake uh, foragers and also about capitalism, which is an in incredible book, was a, was a massive influence on <laughs> this, the game. Um, this book sounds amazing. How have I never yeah, heard of this? Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, you would love it. You, you should read this book 100%. Um, I borrow a lot of ideas from that book. And it's, it's a wonderful book about the idea of thriving in the ruins and what that means and what the ruins of capitalism mean. Um, I'm sorry, and... just the title of that book <laughs> is like, The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. I feel, sometimes you come across things, you feel like they're fucking made for you. That yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. like it. Sorry, go on. Okay, cool. <laughs> no, yeah, and so and the, the book is beautiful. It's, a be uh, it's by Anna Singh, and it's a beautiful... Um, exploration also of her own journey through meeting matsutake farmers uh, or, or like gatherers right because matsutake mushrooms this is the cool thing matsutake mushrooms only grow in basically devastated ecological environments and they're an incredibly valuable commodity uh, that are prized in restaurants kind of globally but are also mostly gathered by itinerant and homeless workers who um you know, go set up camps in like devastated woodland and go trying to find these incredibly valuable objects. Huh. And there's this, this fascinating system of value and food and texture and taste that happens around this. And so that was always going to be like a big influence um, on uh, on the game. Like the presence of mushrooms was always... And also because mushrooms are a perfect actual like... Um, substance to grow in space because they are very hardy uh, they grow out of decay and they grow very fast and they've they're you know they don't need much to live so it's like okay mushrooms are going to be a big part of this yeah. there's also kind of algae um, appears a bit as well because algae is kind of like a great alternative food source um, but I think that in terms of like thinking about textures of food like immediately I, I think you know citizenship very much comes out of me being like that's what i'm interested in in a science fiction story is like who who's eating and like what are they eating and where where are they getting it from um i, I love I that that know. is I, a focus i love that that is yeah. a focus because so many things don't care no about they that. don't they don't <laughs> and that's why i'm part of why i wanted to make this game is like i wanted to make a game i guess that that's the kind of sci-fi I like, right? And, and I think sometimes like science fiction books can do this more, but all the time in movies and stuff, I'm always like looking over the shoulders of characters or I get really excited the moment there's like a bar in the expanse or whatever. And I'm like looking and I'm like, what are they drinking? Like, I wonder yeah. what that is. Like, yeah. I, I want to know more about this bartender. Like, shut up so I can hear about the bartender. Yeah. Or like um, when, when Deckard sits to eat noodles in Blade Runner and yeah, you're yeah. like, I want to know more about this place. I don't care about yeah, what yeah, he's exactly. talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. That is literally the motivation. And I think Emphasis was like the heart of that. Emphasis was the um, one of the first characters I, I wrote. And it was the first character that I asked uh, Guillaume, the, the character artist, to draw. Because I was like, if he can get Emphasis right, he can get everything right. Like uh, this, That's awesome. This is, yeah. this is important to me. Um, and I always, I, I kind of like cut Emphasis off from the rest of the plot. I like wrote emphasis and then I didn't write any more emphasis scenes. I knew, I knew that all the emphasis scenes would be about food and I knew they would just be about bringing him ingredients and cooking. Um, yeah. And emphasis was kind of based on various street food vendors that I've met in London. Um, in particular, like uh, actually emphasis originally was supposed to have like an, a kind of like a Kira bike, 
where there would be he would have adapted like a grill into the back of the bike sure. and that was because um there was an incredible vietnamese um chef who used to ride a bike somewhere near one of the places i used to live and he used to park the bike on the corner and he, he had like a little grill uh, on the front of the bike which i thought was incredibly cool and he <laughs> would cook ban me um out of this uh the front of this bike and what was incredible i actually specifically referenced this in the first scene with emphasis he would individually dress every single banh mi's uh like salad like the mix of chilies and spring onions and yeah oil and and everything like he would do each one individually even if there was a queue of 20 people waiting for for their banh mi sure. sandwiches yeah he would like cook the meat individually and uh, rather than uh, mass, on this rather tiny than grill. mass producing so, it yeah right, so so every single sandwich was made in exactly the same way and every single one was made with him cooking exactly the correct amount of meat that he was going to put in that sandwich dressing exactly the correct salad with the correct volume of dressing and assembling it perfectly um and then presenting that sandwich and then beginning the process again and he was wonderful like he was incredible he had such a great energy as well as a person he was also you know in london you get like these incredible intersections um and i love to hear him speaking french with the french african women who were like coming uh, you know to like to this stall it's like french vietnamese and french african like yeah. eating in this place and the food and i was yeah for me it's just like okay this is this is london this is like what i like and so all that stuff stuck with me in a in a big way um and so that was the when i thought about like what is citizen sleeper about it was like well it's about street food vendors it's about like food it's about what we eat and the way in which kind of in, in both cases of like emphasis and um tala like the food that they make is kind of something they carry with them i think and it's something that they hold on to and no one can take away from them and even no matter what experiences they've had or no matter how big the system is that that moves above them it's like they still can like make some food and give it to somebody sure and that like that can't ever be taken away and that's their culture and their way of life and and yeah like that's the that's that's what i found really exciting and that's what i wanted to to model as like this tiny act of resistance it's just like yeah how how can like making just a banh mi sandwich which itself is like this bizarre colonial construction because it's like made with French, uh, you know, banh mi is made with like a French style baguette. Right. With like Viet <laughs> right. But it's like Vietnamese food put inside yeah. a French baguette. So it's, yeah. like, it's, it's this colonial product. Um, and just like, yeah, it's just making those, watching somebody make those individually with such care and attentiveness and not being rushed by... The fact that there is a huge queue of people and that they could probably expand this business as much as they wanted but actually yeah. it's just a grill on the front of a bike is just kind of like the one yeah, of the rules. most inspiring things <laughs> rules. Yeah, i've rules. ever seen <laughs> just like you rock you're the best person yeah uh, so i was like okay these are the kind of people that i think i want to make i want to put in my game because these are the people that i think are cool rather than um super soldiers or like colonialists or yeah, you sure, know sure 100 explorers or no these are the coolest people um so they're gonna go in my video game um yeah. so yeah so yeah i think it's it's not it's perhaps not surprising 
that you got those vibes <laughs> for yeah. Citizen Sleeper because those are, <laughs> those are the vibes that went in. Yeah, I love that. Like, it was so obvious to me that there was a love of street food when in approaching Emphis. Because like, obviously, he's a he's a street stall food vendor. So like, there, I would imagine anybody that's gonna make that character, and I can't say anybody because I have played games where like, there's a very specific thing referenced, but the person that made that thing didn't know it very well. Uh, and that's I'm not trying to push blame anywhere obviously that could be the result of many things uh big studios often are like do this thing and they're like can i get some time to research it and they're like no <laughs> so i get that um but approaching emphasis and interacting with the first time i it was immediately clear like oh gareth likes street food vendors like it was pretty obvious like straight away like okay yeah i know i don't know this person but i know through what I'm reading, that they have this appreciation for this, like, small, scrappy, I'm doing a thing, like you said, as a form of resistance almost, of like, yeah, there are other places you could go, and yeah, there's a huge line, and yeah, there's probably a way you think this could be made more efficient or better, but I'm making sure each one of these is perfect, because that's why I do it, and it ruled, it ruled. There's, um... I love the idea that, like, the banh is this, like, amalgamation of traditional Vietnamese ingredients and non-traditional colonial French ingredients. Because, like, very frequently when you talk about colonialism or imperialism throughout the world, it's often seen in its, like, negative impact on the culture that exists and the way it bastardizes that culture and takes it back home, right? And that's... I think very valid. I don't want to just, I don't want to invalidate that kind of critique or that kind of uh, evaluation, but I always find it not more interesting, but equally interesting. And I wish it had been shown to me more as a, as a younger uh, person that like as much as an imperialist uh, influence will come in and take something and bring it back home. Uh, isn't the UK's like national dish curry, right? Like, how does that work? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but on a parallel to that, you have the the same thing happening on the other side, where the people that lived there initially take something from the colonizer and make it their own, and then like sell it as their own, create it as their own, as like a no, we yeah, you took something from us, but we took something from you, and this is now this is ours. Uh, I always find that interesting, and it doesn't it doesn't get illustrated very often, and so I don't know. When I had you know that thought specifically in interacting with Tala or interacting with Emphis, but like it felt really clear to me that what they were doing was carrying this thing with them from a place that could no longer be, and taking what was at the eye and saying that yes, this is from here, but I'm making it mine. This is from my past. This is my history. This is my inheritance or heritage. Sorry, and also I think that you you do a good job of contextualizing that even more or maybe giving another voice to that in, in uh, this most recent expansion uh, episode, because and I've forgotten the character's name, but the character from the desert moon. Aki. Yeah. She's constantly worried about like the preservation of what they left behind and bringing that with them as like a responsibility, both for heritage and for, for, um, you know for it to last right to, to to create a thing that could continue to go forward but like towards the end of that little 
thread that you have with her, she's also like, is are we doomed to do this? Like, yeah. is this am I are we just are we just uh like do we, do we are we just keeping a museum of the the thing that's dying? And uh, I loved that, like, as my sleeper, I was able to be like, no, you can use it and you can continue to use it. And like having it is important because it means that it's still there to use. Uh, so like going and interacting with Emphis and Tala and, and these characters, I love that like that is a that is a proponent of it. Right. That like you can see these people not just surviving in a place, but learning to thrive in that place by using it to their advantage as other places have used them to their advantage um and my in my piece i wrote and this was honestly of the of the things i wrote in uh my article about citizen sleeper the there's always like things that like are things i knew ahead of time and as i'm writing i'm like oh i can connect this here and there the the bit i wrote about emphasis and then transitioning that into like my experience with sports as a teenager was not a thing that i had ever correlated in my brain um and it's interesting i'm a little ashamed because i'm 30 and i should have ahead of time but like i never thought about the like the the conflagration of, of exploitation and sports and so listening to emphasis at near the end of his storyline talk about like why he has those circular scars on his body and how like similar to your sleeper he was used by a corporation to do a thing that is wildly unethical and probably deeply uh, exploit, uh, not exploitative, obviously exploitative, but like deeply kept from being obvious, right? It's in the fine print of like, yeah, you'll do this thing and we can totally do it. It's fine. And then you do it and you find out like, oh, it like kills people and there's no way to, there's no way to take it back without yeah. maybe hurting people more. Uh, and thinking about that and writing about that, the whole thing about like, oh, I played sports as a kid and was like asked and oftentimes forced to do things that like aren't aren't good for bodies like adult or developing and uh the impact it had and has on like my knees are shit i caught for 15 years i never had the like proper medical attention after catching like ice baths or whatever people were just like oh it's fine you'll be fine you're young you'll recover which like yes at that time i'll recover but like I think human bodies have a limited resource when it comes to recovery. <laughs> I used a bunch of it up when I was younger. Um, yeah. No, that was just, I don't know where I was going with that, but it was fascinating to me that like in interacting with emphasis and food, which is a thing I absolutely love. I was also clued into the, like maybe when I was younger, the, the sports that I remember so fondly and I'm now paying for so frequently those two things aren't separate from each other. They could have been yeah. good, but also could have been exploitative at the same time. I mean, I, I love that part of your piece as well. The Because I hadn't thought about sports in those terms, I think, exactly. Uh, and I thought it's like a really strong example of that process. And the funny thing, I think, with making something like Citizen Sleeper is it has been the process of like, I, you know, I work on my own and I write this stuff on my own. And so a lot of it comes out of intuition and um, experience in a way that I'm not necessarily kind of conceptualizing it right. Like I just like with Emphis, like I knew that Emphis, like the, the only things I knew about Emphis was Emphis cooks really good mushrooms. Um, yeah. And 
Emphis has these scars from this experience on on his body. And those were the two things that I knew about Emphis when I first kind of conceptualized Emphis as a character. But I don't really know exactly why I conflated those two things or why I felt that those things were resonant. Perhaps because Emphis was the first character I was making. And therefore, those to me feel like two very important parts of Citizen Sleeper, those two separate stories sure. and how those two things interact with each other. Like the both the the kind of I guess like the like you say, the also the like positive negative like conflict there of like emphasis kind of like he has this like he has something very positive and something that he gives the world and something that he offers, but he offers it very quietly. And also like the world has taken a lot of things from him as a person. And those two things seem related, but they also are not necessarily like uh, interacting. And sure. I don't know, I, I, you know, when I wrote that character, I was thinking of people that I know. And I was thinking of people like, I guess I was thinking of one person I think that had an impact on that is like my uncle who, um, worked like in she he had like a company that did like machine building for uh ships and submarines so they basically like built specialized machines in order to work on submarines and ships but a lot of the work he and his colleagues did involved kind of like crawling inside like submarines and doing like incredibly dangerous and yeah. particular work and he has permanent problems with his knees because of this and kind of and um he wasn't like a kind of classic exploited laborer right he was like a mechanical engineer he like he had his own business he ran that business like he did this work um but like the way in which that passed and those things impacted on his body is just something that i always thought about a lot it's like the way in which work um impacts on our bodies and even I've had that in, in my own experience. I have varicose veins in, in my legs, which uh, mean I have very poor blood flow in my legs. And I worked as a games tester for many, for a couple of years and it involved far too much sitting down and caused me a lot of problems. Um, and I think like all kinds of work impacts itself on our bodies in ways that we rarely conceive of at the time of which is happening. Sure. And then later we kind of realize what the hell was is happening and we're like <laughs> oh okay like and it's especially easy to abuse the young in this way i think because you you're told you're invulnerable and you feel invulnerable and you kind of just yeah, like, yeah i'll get better like i'll recover yeah and says, yeah you'll recover and then later <laughs> you're like oh i didn't recover yeah. and it's too late now and yeah I, I yeah i think those are the i don't know it just felt like a really real way of expressing the ideas I had about how systems impact on our lives, but also not to make that I didn't want to just make a story that was about characters who were just like, well, I've been broken by the world and that's it for me. You know, like sure. it, it, the scars are there for Emphis, but like the way that Emphis wears the scars is, was very important to me. It was very important sure. that Emphis would not like, he neither conceals them nor accentuates them. They, they are just a presence there and mm -hmm. they don't, they, you know, emphasis kind of like the way we, the way we get to perceive emphasis for the first time is in a way, the way that emphasis would like to be perceived, which is kind of like this, this figure, like just quietly making this food for people like fastidiously with a focus on perfection, like no matter what the cue is, just like th this is emphasis in control. And I wanted to, all throughout Citizen Sleeper, I wanted to show characters that despite suffering, ha have their moments of control, that we get to see them in their place. And, and that they're, all of these kind of ways we take control um, 
are like little ways in which we resist these insanely large systems that that crush us without ever thinking about us without ever knowing we exist yeah, it's like actually somehow pastors. yeah but somehow and that's the but that's the disc i think that's constantly like what i was kind of like spiraling and spiraling in my head when i was working on citizen sleeper is like whether or not that's incredibly tragic or whether or not that's incredibly beautiful is the way in which we take control yeah. and we find these little ways of of being in spite of something which is so big that it doesn't it it you know it it does it invalidate these things or or does it not and i i guess like i don't think it invalidates these things but it's like sometimes it feels like it sometimes it's right you'd be forgiven to, to for doing. thinking that yeah exactly yeah. like i i cook so i i love to cook and i i cook pretty much every day and um i love cooking for people it's like one of the great pleasures in my life i think it's probably like the purest thing i i Dude, do 100 percent. Like... <laughs> yeah i agree 100 percent and um sometimes it feels like you can't cook or you you like yeah like it feels pointless or whatever and it yeah. doesn't but yeah i think i think that's a that's a big part of it and citizen sleep is definitely a hopeful game but it, it's yeah i wanted to engage really meaningfully with the the other part the the bigger things that are happening so i couldn't just make a game that was like oh look um you know everything's great cool street food <laughs> right no problems here right right <laughs> it's all chill like, sure because that's not that's not what life looks like uh, and it it's cool street food's not as cool unless it's done in the kind of like shadow of, of vast colonial and, and yeah. economic systems yeah no yes 100 percent. i uh <laughs> i love that you let um i love that you let the player also engage with that like um that interaction with food right of like you can go eat places but then like if you work with tala and help build the distillery out tala surprises you by by giving you uh, a kitchen and i i don't know i have it's been months since i played it through the first time i don't remember if there's ever any specific context given to like why that kitchen is there like if Tala's going to use it for the bar or if it's just like a place for you to make your own food because like you don't have a kitchen in your uh in your living spaces all over the 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 eye as far as i remember so i i always remembered like i sometimes i'll go eat at emphasis stall and then sometimes i'm like you know what narratively it's friday and friday nights the bantian has noodles and i make them so i go and i make them and of course what you've written is that like yeah you and and tala share them but i think that like in my brain sometimes i'm like you know what it's a little pop-up and occasionally we make food for people that are there if they want it and it's something that gets added to the menu occasionally there's a little pinball bar near my house called the silver ballroom and uh in the back they have a this this korean woman who was recently written about in the new york times who was adopted in the states and like last year found her family from korea uh who runs this little place called tiny chef out of the back of this pinball lounge that makes like traditional Korean food and then also mixes it. Like she had a kimchi carbonara a couple weeks ago. That was the fucking best. Wow. It was so good. Um, but like that story, right. Of like, I'm in this place that I'm not from and I was raised by people who are not where I am from, but I have this deep need or like desire to, connects with where I'm from and then her being able to find her family. And just that story is deeply fascinating and, and moving to me. And I love that you give players 
at least a, a small way to interact with like what they want to do in the space of food because I've I I like you I love to cook all the time but also I have those I have like the last couple of weeks I hit this wall where like I'm constantly every day being like have I hit a wall am I have I burnt out on cooking like I just don't have the motivation to like put together um, a shopping list to buy specific things so that I can build a menu so I can make for my wife and kids like I just uh but that also yeah. feels super natural you know it just people don't talk about it very much and so it's interesting to like be able to experience these things in a in a game that like I would argue wasn't made specifically for that experience to be um, conveyed, but like did it regardless. Um, yeah, I love I love when people like like I said when we started this uh, before recording. For some reason, the interviews I've conducted have always ended up talking about food in some way. <laughs> I think that there's a there's a relatively close tie between like making games and making food because. At its core, you are creating art that is consumable and is made to, you know, be experiential. And I don't think that most, I don't think everybody creates food as an experience. <laughs> I think everybody should. I think food is important in that way. And I think that, I think that uh, the congregation of bodies around tables to eat a shared meal is like deeply important. And I, there's scientists and sociologists and psychologists who've said the same thing. I'm not saying anything novel, but like I, again, as playing through this game and writing about it helped me tie things together. I've never tied together food and game design being so similar is something that I think I've just kind of realized over this, this specific uh, discussion that like, Oh shit, it's kind of the same thing. And it comes with, you know, you need a set of skills to figure out how to do it. And if you don't have those skills, it can be intimidating. Um, but yeah, a game is a, a shared meal to me in a, in a lot of ways where I'm congregating over a thing made by somebody for me. Uh, or if not, obviously you didn't make this game for Caleb, but a game made for <laughs> oh, people. Oh, but I did. <laughs> it sounds, honestly, it feels it like you did. It sounds very much it like It sounds very much like you were like, I don't know this guy, but <laughs> this game is going to be yeah. just 100% his shit. <laughs> I mean, this is this has been like the the wonderful thing about releasing Citizen Sleeper, I think, because I had this such a distinct experience with releasing In Other Waters that I, as someone who's kind of like I don't know, spent a lot of time uh, trying to be an artist and thinking about, it's like when I came to making games, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to make what's cool. But for me, there was always a separation, I think, between the fact that I played games and I made art and I didn't wouldn't say that games are not art but it's more that like those two things felt very different mm -hmm. in my mind and so when I came to make games I I, I was like okay I'm going to make games so I'm going to make them on my own terms but I didn't really think of in other waters as being I felt it was personal in the sense that it represented my interests but I didn't necessarily I wasn't necessarily like oh this is a this is really coming from like somewhere deep and meaningful to me and then it was a real struggle to finish it. And I didn't spend, I didn't go back to the game until six months after it came out. I couldn't watch like um, Let's Plays and things. I just found it too difficult. I'd spent too much time in that world. But when I watched those Let's Plays again, and when I saw what people were saying, I was like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> I just, I, like, there is so much of me in this game and I didn't know it. 
Sure. And I, I discovered so much about myself, like listening to other people talk about In Other Waters and play it and, and do Let's Plays and be like, yeah. and I tried to take that knowledge. I tried to more intentionally do that with Citizen Sleeper. I tried to be like, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge that this is going to be about things that mean something to me. Yeah. And that that will be what people that will be what people connect to. That will be what people engage with. It it will be these things because the same thing had happened within the waters and I think that allowed me to kind of like try to accentuate those aspects or try to like be aware of them. And so it meant that when Citizen Sleeper launched, I didn't I wasn't like, "Oh, I can't look at this thing." Instead, it was kind of beautiful that I felt I could understand that everyone was going to have their own version of it and it was a pleasure to watch that happen and I could enjoy that and sure. that was that was really nice and that I think is I think it does have a lot of similarities with with food and with how you put yourself into a meal when you make it because there are different ways that you can I know there are times when like you can feel a, making a meal for people is really exposing and kind of terrifying sure. and it reflects back on you in a way that's unpleasant. And sometimes you can make something like you can make something that maybe not everybody would like, but you, you like it and you present it in a way where you're like, you, you feel comfortable with that and sure. that can be very rewarding too. And it's, so I, I like your, I like the comparisons you're drawing there, but the other comparison I'd kind of be tempted to draw is that, with Citizen Sleeper, I thought a lot about what a uh, GM or a DM or uh, however you want to sure. call the person who leads a tabletop game does. Because sure. I felt, I feel that my instinct as a GM is like a hosting instinct and it comes from the same instinct. It comes from the same part of my brain and my heart that connects to food. And um, <laughs> I feel like there's a strong alliance there between between guiding people through a game and t helping people tell a story and working with people to tell a story and also between walking out and taking putting food on the table and then eating it right it's like that it, it's the i think maybe it feels different if you make food for people and then you you stay in the kitchen and they eat it but when you take the food to the table and you eat it as well yeah i think like that that that's there's something kind of like a tabletop rpg there and in sure. the process like you, you're implicated um and i guess that's with citizen sleeper i i feel like i i ate it as well yeah, yeah <laughs> like, sure you know like <laughs> I, I i had the opportunity to like to sit with people uh, like yourself and like and listen to their experiences and i found that incredibly rewarding and i'm definitely you know from now on like the way of making it i want to like continue this feeling sure, um, sure in the stuff i make of like trying i don't know this certain kind of openness or to to allow people to imprint or to give space for that because it's yeah it's it can be really beautiful and i think i think there's a, a lot of citizen sleeper for me is um it's about solidarity. It's about solidarity with people that I've known and people that I don't know, but have played the game. And I, I think like, that's the, that's like kind of the minimum thing that, that Citizen Sleeper kind of asks of the player to relate to all the other people is to have some yeah. kind of solidarity with the characters is to sure. kind of like, if not to, to like, even to like them or to, to love them or to, but just to have solidarity with with their struggles and what they've been through and yeah. to sit quietly with them and um, be there as well. 
and so yeah i think all of those things like meld together i guess like being being with people being with people with food i mean that yeah like the final scene with with emphasis i kind of wrote about a little bit about that the kind of like that the, the the you know that you don't need to speak necessarily like you can just be a presence like yep. the, the importance of being a presence and eating together yep. and, yeah i connected with that so yeah so i think you're basically you're you're totally on point yeah sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> i also love that again in this most recent episode uh i think that you illustrate that like it's okay to just be there and uh to have solidarity with people in the the singers um backstory right the people from ember song who like were the engineers who like yeah just kind of got trounced all over and uh is it petter who's like yeah no <laughs> i don't want to <laughs> fuck with any of this stuff and i don't want you to relate i just want you to just deal and i'm like oh, yeah that's super valid and i have memories of interacting with people like that in my life that were like yeah you know what we've worked together but like i don't I'm not interested in this being any deeper than like, get your job done. I'll get my job done. We'll be fine. And I'm like, yeah, that's okay. That's fine. And I like the, the prompt to like interact with people on the eye uh, or even Dragos. I think it feels the same way in, in a lot of ways. Dragos is kind of like, yeah, you can work here, but like, eh, I don't want to be friends, which is funny because like, there's an ending tied to him. I never saw because I I think I worked too much and scared him away. And he was like, eh, don't want you to. And I was like, yeah, no, that's valid. And then I looked later and was like, oh, shit, there's like a whole ending attached to this guy who, like, I only was able to interact with for the first quarter of my playthrough, maybe the first third. Um, but then you, like, yeah, you give the, you give Petter and the, and the, the singers and, again, reemphasize that, like, not everybody, like, being sharing in solidarity with people doesn't always mean becoming friends. It doesn't always mean like building a deep, intimate, lasting relationship. Sometimes it means building a functional and operational partnership or not even partnership, just mutual existence where like I can do my thing, you can do your thing. And we're allowed to do those things without over encroaching into each other's lives. Um, I like the 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 wide spectrum of different types of people and interactions that you have built into Citizen Sleeper. Um, did so. This is a question that I I had because my uncle brought it up after his game, uh, and it's a bit of a jump a jump on from train track to train track. But my uncle assumed that there was an ending where you, <laughs> your sleeper woke up, like at back at I guess some S and R facility and i was like no that's not the point of this at all also if you woke up i think they would just put you back to i don't know if you have that ability so was that so the 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 functioning relationship the functioning not even relationship but setting i know i said we talk about food and we've digressed back i promise we'll come back um we talked about food too uh the setup of this game right is that you are and then indentured and in, in indentured servitude essentially to a company uh because you need to pay off some kind of debt or something and that like you are emulated consciousness in a machine but that you are somewhere was the you and i know that's the, that's a tricky question because like i think that citizen sleeper as much as we've talked about how it interacts with you know chronic illness and 
Uh, I even saw shades of like the otherness of being minority, right? When you walk down the street in the eye and people look at you or want to touch, like the first few people like put their hand on me a lot, but did you put their hand on the sleeper a lot? And I was like, that's, I know what that feels like. Of just people being like, can I touch your hair? And then like, ugh, as a black man, that's, that happens. But uh, was there ever any, um, any S and ARP story possibility that you had that had anything to do with your flesh self or was that always compartmentalized and, and not the not the point of this story this story feels very much like it is the sleepers focus obviously but was there ever a, a thought in your brain to include the the other self yeah i mean i think the other self is such a fascinating thing because i kind of just came up with it like in a way that was quite kind of just like intuitive and since then i've thought a lot about why it is that i was like this is a frame for a story yeah and i think that it has a lot to do with my own struggles with um i i was a very i was very depressed and um had a very difficult childhood and very difficult teenage years and my way of dealing with that was to basically say like I'm a different is to like not think about the past and just like draw a line in the sand and say sure. like I'm moving on now. And yeah. the person who did those things to me was somebody else. And I don't think I realized how much I did that and how much of a problem I have with past versions of myself until I made an entire video game where about that. the previous version <laughs> of yourself basically betrayed you and you have to live with the fact that you are the product of somebody saying I don't care if a version of me exists in the world and is suffering for my benefit, right? Like that ultimately, like the person who makes the sleeper is somebody you have to live with the fact that, and then some players pick on this and some players are like, oh, that's really a big thing for me in the game. And other people are like, yeah, whatever. And I think it's totally valid to be either way, but it's just funny to me that I was like, yeah, wow, this is like, this is some real <laughs> real psychoanalysis stuff going on yeah, here yeah. about past selves and being identified. And, you know, yeah. So I think that's part of it. I think it's part of maybe um, my experience of being non-binary as well and not being able to necessarily process myself as a coherent individual I, I always struggle with that i always struggled as a kid as a teenager i had very extreme depersonalization and i've always struggled to kind of resolve myself as a thing i always just feel like i'm if i look at myself in the mirror i'm like sure that person yeah right, right. but i'm not like like it's not, i'm not like yeah me i'm just like sure that person again sure like that, that's, yeah and that's kind of, i've kind of settled into that but yeah i don't think i'd realized how much i had internalized that process so I think that's a big part of it. So I think that the that the other thing that I was thinking when I came up with the sleeper and I was of I was thinking about I don't know, I was thinking about like how you like it makes you a kind of a kind of dead end. You're both kind of free and lost at the same time sure. because you're like nobody cares what happens to you and you are like you're you're a you're a like a branch that will end. Like you you can't you have to accept that as a sleeper that like you, you you're just kind of like you're an offshoot of a person yeah. not a person and you're somehow less than a person but you've got to then you you but you feel like a person 
right. I guess. So I guess that's maybe why there's a relationship with minoritized experience there, because it's also like, what does it mean to be told or to see around you, to see structures that tell you that like you're less, but then actually for your experience to be like, no, but I, I exist, right? right. Like I have, I, I, I'm real. I know I'm real <laughs> and I know that I have rights. Um, yeah. But you're all telling me that, that that's not true. Um, and yeah, I think like, um, yeah, like I, I had experiences growing up where I was like targeted because of how I presented. And, you know, I, so I think like definitely for me, the sleeper is a very personal condition that I created as a fiction. But I think like the, the more I looked at it, the more like from the distance, especially the distance of post-release, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm modeling some things here that I've experienced that I, mean something to me, this relationship to memory um the relationship to previous selves the idea of like how you live with what you've done and how you live with who you once were and then also how others identify you when you don't even necessarily like identify with yourself like sure. how other people also like pin things on yeah. that and you're like i better i don't am i even that person am i like, that yeah right <laughs> okay there's a great joke actually in um oh i forget what it's called there's a um Oh, it's a it's a show about a stand up comedian. It's like a, a BBC show, um, and they are like questioning whether they're trans or not. And they basically go to get a new agent, and their agent is like, "Oh, I love this whole thing you've got going on. Like this whole trans thing you're doing. It's wonderful." And and the comedian is like, "Oh, uh, so you think I'm trans?" You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's like, wait, you know something? So, like, can I ask your opinion? Do you, yeah. do you think I'm trans, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, and I, yeah, like, it's that kind of, those kind of feelings, I guess. Like, oh, you you, you think I'm a robot? Like, I guess, I guess I'm a, I could be a robot. Like, yeah. if that if that works for everybody, I guess I could be a robot right now, if, yeah. if that's what you'd like. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. So, for me, I guess, like, I... I don't even think about that person because I also, there was a little bit of me that in the very, very early version of the game that wanted the player to, to maybe imagine that they were the person who made the sleeper, that like sure. they themselves were asleep somewhere and the sleeper was their own version, was a version of themselves yeah. that had been broken free because that's kind of how we play role-playing games, mm -hmm. right? It's like, we, we, we snap off a little branch of ourselves and we like yeah. go down like that route. And we know that it doesn't, we don't have to justify that person and that person never has to like really exist, right. but it allows us to kind of play or to, to, to make a space where we can be a different person for a little while. And so I guess like part of me was in the very early version of Season Sleeper was interested in trying to, for example, I, like I wrote some early scenes where you would choose what memories you had based on mm. like the memories that you have, but like not explicitly, but kind of like, you know, I would, if the sleeper, I, I think if that's what I would do, if the sleeper ever remembered anything, if the sleeper was ever like, I remember something, that memory would be like three different memories and you as the player would decide yeah. like what the sleeper remembered. That's the only way that I would ever do that because that's the, that would be true to, I think, what I was doing. Sure. 
Sure, and I think you, I think you give a little bit of an opportunity for that in in interacting with Empus, because when he asks mm, you to yes. share something, right? While it's not choosing which memory is real, it is choosing which memory you allow people to remember from you, right? Like there are stories that you share with other people you meet, and those stories are as editorialized as they are in your own brain. But like the fact that you get to tell someone a thing is that most of the time those stories you share are specific. I don't share certain things with certain people because I don't want them to think about me in that way. Even if it's not ostensibly a bad way, it's just like, no, it's important that we understand each other on this level, and I have a story that ties to that, uh, yeah, as yeah, opposed yeah. to I don't want to tell, I don't know, my coworker about m my dad. Uh, that seems weird. But I would tell somebody else in a different situation that story. Um so you 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 do allow for that a bit in that in that storyline because you can say do I want to talk about this or this, but I think it would be I think it would be cool to have an instance where your sleeper is like oh weird I remember something and then giving us the option to choose what that something is. Um, so yeah, well, one of the oh, yeah, one of the the endings there's like you get to see a picture of yourself, um, but you don't get to see it in the game. But like your sleeper sure. basically gets to see a picture of themselves if you go on the the sidereal um, because the past that and that was kind of yeah like that felt like oh a, man a, a, I I wanted the player to maybe like insert their own like version of themselves in there like as the sleeper sure. kind of looking at a picture of them and being like this isn't me um, yeah I think my sleeper yeah. essentially would have done that then because I took that storyline to the point where i realized what caster was doing and i was like nope <laughs> nope uh again my Good uncle decision. my uncle did that first and was like i mean i'm already being tracked so it'll be fine and i was beyond <laughs> i mean fair dues yeah I mean, yeah fair but i uh i had moved beyond that fact i had removed that uh that little obstacle and so when he was like yeah i'm just gonna track you i was like fuck you dude no um so i imagine that like Again, as I narrativize it, that my sleeper walking to Lem and Mina's apartment with those things in hand probably looked at what would have been a picture of themselves and been like, no, not only is this not right for what is happening, what I've built here, who I think these people are and what I want for their future, but also like this thing represents a, a me that I'm not, that I was once maybe, but not now. Uh, and so yeah, I crumpled those motherfuckers up and threw them in a in a storm drain, <laughs> and was like, eh. I honestly, some I think that like the existence of guides on the internet is a blessing and a curse because if you want if you need help to get through something, you can find it most of the time. Um, the conditions of work for the people making those things, notwithstanding, because they're often terrible. Uh, I appreciate them for that for their existence in that way, but. I also think that in games where your choices impact the story, uh, the existence of guides can often allow people to avoid a bunch of oops. And it's tough sometimes to make sure you don't like read the outcomes before you do something. The only, <laughs> the only time in this game I was like, I have to make sure the choice I make does what I want was when I was standing outside Lemon Mina's apartment. And I was like, if I go in... Does it automatically give it to them? Or can I, do I have to toss them now? 
So I made sure what I did was right. I didn't change anything because I ended up picking the right thing. But I made sure that, like, in this specific instance, what I want to have happen, I have to have happen because it's the last thing I'm going to do. Um, yeah. That... Yeah, those, those scenes are tricky to write. Sure. Uh, for that reason. Because I always try to give, like, double backs and, like, I try to make sure that people can't accidentally make those massive decisions. Sure. Because there's nothing that kills your experience more than when you're like, wait, what? What did I just <laughs> yeah. do? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I, it's so tricky to write those scenes to make sure that, like, people feel prepared and you've given them the information to, like, that on either side and you're not going to trick them. And generally in Citizen Sleeper, like, I won't allow anybody to make any choices that will end with something, like, really bad happening. Sure. There's a couple of cases where stuff goes wrong, but, like, I never wanted to be like, oh, yeah, you made this choice. Like, these guys die, you know? Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> your, your, whole, your whole, your whole, the rest of your entire playthrough is marred by this one <laughs> crater of a mistake you made. Yeah, sure. I'm, so, I'm very yeah. grateful for that. <laughs> I mean, I think that's like a, that is like a, a DM's instinct, I think. Like, sure. I thought about that a lot. I thought about how, as a DM, I never, ever want my players to like get stuck in a hole they can't get out of. And I never want to just like push them, like trapdoor them into like a bad situation that they don't deserve. And so I thought, I thought like the, the rule for me with Citizen Sleeper was like, the consequences have to be interesting. Like they can be bad, but as long as they're interesting, as long as they move the narrative, um, yeah. then they, they're okay. They, but they can't be the kind of consequences that just like, just like, that's the end of that. Yeah. Like, no more plot. Um, enjoy. Yeah, it's like, got to be yes. It's got to be yes and right. It's got to yeah, play along exactly. with improv. You've got a yes and. Okay, this happens, but I then mean, this. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's no, it's got to be no and. Right. There's definitely always got to be the end. Yeah, absolutely. You got to leave it open at least a little bit, so that it can continue. Um, I've I just realized this has been two hours. Uh, it kind of <laughs> flew by. I don't want to take up more much more of your time. So there's I, I always wrap up with. A few questions. Uh, I think they're fun. They're food related. So uh, one of them is food related. Um, and then we can wrap. So the first one is if you had infinite money, right? If money's not an option, uh, not an object, obstacle, sorry. Uh, what franchise that no longer exists, or not even franchise, what like IP that no longer is being iterated on, would you want to put your own spin on? Um, like if you could make a game about a thing that you experienced mm. once that hasn't been done again, or maybe something that hasn't had a game, like I'm constantly surprised that like there aren't games based on some of the comics that I read because it's like, uh, this would be perfect. But yeah, do you have a do you have a, a thing that you'd love to make that you don't have the rights to make, or it would be tough to get the rights to make that given them you would do it? God. That's a tough one. The, when you said comic, I immediately thought of the comic Stages of Rot by Linnea Sturt. Sure. Um, sure. I would love to make a video game of that comic. I don't even know what that will be, but that, <laughs> that comic book is just incredible. Um, but I could probably, maybe I could get the rights to that. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> in terms of games that once happened, I think the game Hard War, I would love to make a Hard War game. What is Hard War? Um, Hard War is a very weird PC game made in Liverpool um, about a oh. 
colony on Titan. And it's basically a bit like a leap, but you're kind of, you're just trying to get by in this like messed up wasteland sure. where a corporation is kind of like failed and there's all these like pirates and people in messed up situations and it has an incredible atmosphere and soundtrack and it's just yeah it's full of vibes it's full of like yeah. buying a big big crate of human body parts and selling it to somebody Ooh. um for the best for the best price <laughs> and it's full of like weird fmv videos shot presumably in like aircraft hangars somewhere near liverpool of guys in leather jackets just being like you gotta take out those pirates <laughs> yeah. um uh, yeah, it's got this incredible, incredible uh, electronic soundtrack. That's yeah, it's just it has so many vibes, and it's it's um, it's very cool and weird. And it just I played it once as like a kid slash teenager, and on my friend's computer, and it just glued itself into my brain sure. in a way that like it would just forever. Yeah, I'd also make an Echo the Dolphin game. To be fair, dude, I would make an Echo the Dolphin game. I love Echo the Echo Dolphin was amazing. So much. In other words, is me making an Echo of the Dolphin game. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's not similar in any way. No. Part of my brain is like, yeah. That's awesome. Echo of the Dolphin. Yeah, that's absolutely. So those, are my answers. <laughs> those are good answers. Those are good answers. I have never heard of Hard War, but yep. Yeah, that rules. That, yep. It's cool. I like it a lot. And uh, I always play, when I play Elite Dangerous, I, my brain's always like, boy, I wish this had more story bits to then draw my own narrative between because oftentimes i get in it and i'm like eh, there's no one to talk to uh yeah, you yeah, can yeah. do things but eh. and hardboard sounds like essentially that so yeah i'm make another one of these it needs to happen <laughs> i love it i love it i uh i'm currently like in the process of trying to figure out how to make um a game where you run a salvage operation in space that like very much feels like elite and hard war. That's like, how, here's a bunch of stuff that you do and you can do how do you use your day? Right. Cause you, you work at a, you work at a place and you have a clock. So you have eight hours or 10 hours on shift to do as much salvage as you can. And you get graded. It's fun, but it's always about like trying to find a place where you can live in a, in a, a field of opportunity rather than like uh, a road with a bunch of different turnoffs. Right. Yeah, I don't yeah, want yeah. it to just be like, you can go here or here. I want it to be like, Oh, what do you do? Okay. Nice. Question number two, if you could make a game about food, what kind of food would it be? And what kind of game would it be? I realize when I ask these questions that like I should send them to people before we record <laughs> so they can think about it. And I always forget to do that. Um, so sorry, I'm just dropping another tough question on you. Yeah. Wow. This is a tough one. Um, what game would it be? I mean, I really, I really want to make a game about running food stall of some kind i don't know what it would what kind of food it would be maybe it would be like it would be anything with a lot of a lot of chilies in a in a wok yeah. and some other ingredients yeah. i just i i love i have a deep love for cooking in a wok in a in a big steel wok so i think that would just be the whatever it would be it would just be like a burner and a wok and sure. that would be the, the 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 deal you know i always have this thing in games that like 
games always want you to expand out of the interesting stuff. Like my favorite thing in games is often the starter thing. Like when you have a crappy spaceship yeah. that looks like a big, big like truck at the start of like a space game. And I'm always like, I want to just keep this thing. Don't make me have like an F-16. Yeah. I, w- I just want this. Like, I want- this is my home. <laughs> yeah. This is this is where I live. Yeah. And it's the same. Like if I, you know, if I made like a cooking game, there's like this weird thing in kind of management games where it's like, they, you know, it's like, oh, get bigger, get bigger, expand, like buy nicer cookers. And it's like, nope, it's just, yeah, it's just the burner and the wok. Yeah, That's yeah. me. That's I'm staying in this zone. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you can you can detect the inspirations from earlier in our conversation. But yeah, I yeah. think uh, whatever it will be, it will be about running a, a street food stall and, and having like a cute little pop out thing that you just kind of like set up sure. a little burner and you put a wok on it and sure. throw some things in it. Did you uh, did you ever play Coffee Talk? Yeah, yeah. Coffee talk yeah. feels like what I would do in in a way, largely because like it's about food service, but like beyond that, it's you're not expanding and you're not like graded by how much money you make. So like, yeah, yeah. as much as as much as I can, let's issue this the, the the capitalist restrictions I live my life by. Not stick that in my game, please. That would be great. Um, so like a game. Actually, you know, yeah. Good. No, sorry. I just suddenly, it's, I suddenly remembered The Bear, which I assume you, you have watched or are watching The Bear. Yeah. And I think that would make an incredible video game yeah. as well. Like if I was going to make a cooking video game, it would be like The Bear. It would be like you have to deal with the fact that your chef hates you or like that yeah. you, you like and that your, your waiter is, like is in debt. And yeah. you're like, this is the cooking game I'd make where everybody is kind of like exposed to risk and um, is part of like a structure. And you're just trying to build a community co- that can support all those people. Yeah. Like you've got like five people in your kitchen and your establishment. And they all get like the, the goal of the game is to like make that community work for everybody who's in there. Sure. That is how that sure. is actually like the ultimate. 100%. And you have to like. You have to like some nights you have to pick up extra work because someone couldn't make it in and that becomes either a conversation with them or something you don't talk about because you know what they're going through and it's not worth talking about at work and building that relationship. Yeah. Go drive to their house and sort some stuff out. Yeah. Because and like leave the kitchen actually because that's part of the the, the reality. Oh man. The option to like that's the cooking game. Yeah, the (laughs) option to like sacrifice your midday prep before the night because you have to go help a person like get up in the morning or something and then you get back and work is tougher but they're here and they're okay and you know that and that's better yep yep that rules that rules that rules that's the game (laughs) that rules that's perfect sorry to interrupt you no it's fine that's perfect i don't remember what i was saying what was i saying i don't know it's fine this is this was a better idea anyway. I know, I know this was a better idea anyway. Um, I always, I always, whenever I want to think about making something about food, my brain's always like ramen, 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 because it's so, it's a simple thing, right? It's a bowl of soup and noodles, but it's so complex. There's so many things that can go into it or can be left out of it to make it change completely. So I think my game would be about ramen, but. I also think my game would more or less be about a ramen shop or a restaurant. And now I have to have the relationship shit with the people in the kitchen because, like, having worked in a kitchen, that is literally what your entire... Like, yes, you are trained on what you need to make. But what your shift actually is is dealing with all these people in different stages of their life or their struggle. And that rules. 
Yeah. Sweet. I'm going to think about that game for the next forever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I said I wouldn't take too much of your time. I did take two hours. So, sorry. That's fine. It flew by. I said, I, you know, I said at this, to be fair, I said at the start of the podcast that I'm, I'm trying to be relaxed. So yeah. it's just a bit of practice for me being relaxed. There it is. Yeah. There. Well, I'm glad I could have, I could help in a way. Um, <laughs> this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you for coming on. That's been my pleasure, really. And it's, yeah, it's, it's also, it's been so nice. And I, yeah, I just want to say again, that you, I just loved your, the piece you sent me. And yeah, it's very cool. And I assume that the people listening to this podcast can read that piece somewhere. When yes. They hear this when podcast. they hear the podcast, was, they will. Yeah. I, I was good. Well, go read it. People <laughs> who are listening to this podcast, oh. because it's wonderful. And yeah, I really, I got a lot out of it. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. I, for a minute, I was like, am I going to try and publish this? somewhere like am i going to send this somewhere or am i just going to put it on my website but i think that like for the not for the sake of anything but like i think it just feels right to me that it's on my site and people can come if they'd like uh also as indie as an indie uh journalist i don't know who i would send it to in the first place to be like put this put this up on your website um so who knows who knows but when this is out uh, at the very least, you'll either be able to read it or I will have um, recorded an audio version of it so you can listen to it. Or both. Who knows? Wow. Yeah. I'll just read through it and, and that way you can do listen to it while you're doing dishes or working because nothing's more appropriate than reading about <laughs> Citizen Sleeper <laughs> while also getting stuff done. Um, yeah. If people wanted to find you, Gareth, on social media or anything, if you want them to, where would uh, where would they look? <laughs> yeah, please come find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jump Over the Age, which is kind of the name of my studio, my studio of one person. And um, you can also find the game at Citizen Sleeper as well. And yeah, and you can find my my magazine about games and architecture, which we didn't really talk about, but uh, definitely exists. Super uh, meant at, to. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's no, it's definitely not about food. Uh, at Heterotopia Zine as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can you can find all that stuff around, and hopefully Twitter still exists by the time this podcast goes. Oh, at this point, I don't know if I hope it still exists. <laughs> <laughs> I say hope. Yeah, hope is a strong <laughs> word at this point. I maybe in the future we could talk about uh heterotopias because i did go to school initially to be an architect and then ended up oh, yeah. moving into history and then writing and majoring in writing instead but like architecture is a huge love of mine and the architecture and games is huge so we'll maybe in the future i'll reach out again and we can talk specifically about that also i meant to bring up andor because of architecture yeah. and resistance uh and we didn't do that either. So maybe we'll just have to talk again yeah, in the future. We can talk about Andor in the future. Yeah. 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 But uh, that show's great. That show, show rules. It's so much better than Star Wars fans deserve, honestly, because many of them yeah. have been such assholes. <laughs> um, but if you want to follow anything Nerdy Bits does, uh, you can go to nerdybits.com or follow us on Twitter at nerdy underscore bits, N E R D Y underscore B I T S. You can follow me at lubwub, L U B W U B everywhere uh instagram twitter it's also my handle on xbox and pc so if you, you want to hang out that's how you find me uh yeah we get our music from monster cat so thanks for them uh, for the music and as george bernard shaw says 
we don't stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop playing. So don't stop playing. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Gareth, for coming on. Thank you. And we'll catch you guys next time. Peace. keep coming yeah, back to it and being i was telling my uncle last night i've constantly slightly frustrated that citizen sleeper is so good because like i was playing the the refuge episode last night and i was like you know you think after making a game that's this big which i mean big like taking that much writing that there would be little instances of like oh that one's a little less i don't like that one as much but you introduced like six characters in this most recent one and i was like fuck they're all good Damn it. This is really good. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad because I have no, it, you know, from my side, I really don't know. So it's it's nice to hear when somebody's like, yeah, this stuff's good. Because, yeah, I mean, I just make, especially the refuge stuff, it's definitely like, I'm terrified to add bad stuff to the game. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be good if I'm going to add it. Everybody likes this game. Yep. I better not fuck it up. Yeah. Um, you have not. Don't so worry. I'm glad to hear that hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> well,